is your host, Greg Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit organizations all across the country to translate your vision into reality. I want to welcome everybody back. We've had a bit of a break from the from the podcast in recent weeks as I've been doing some traveling, uh, but I'm excited to create a new episode today and welcome in a true expert um, to join us for the conversation. We're going to be talking about board fundraising effectiveness and how to train and how to equip and how to engage your board in the vital task of fundraising. And to join us, we have a true expert um, uh, joining us in the conversation today, a uh, gentleman by the name of Darian Rodriguez-Hayman. Uh, Darian is the founder and CEO of Helping People Help. Darian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you joining us. For our listeners, um, share a little bit about your background. I know you've accomplished um, a number of things and have held uh, some really interesting, intriguing positions. Sure. Yeah, I'm a bit of a dot-com refugee. So right out of college, I, I sort of started and sold one of the first digital ad agencies. That was a phenomenal experience, and we grew the company to almost 400 employees in over 20 countries. Uh, but we also had 22 married couples come out of it, and so it was very much a family and after we sold the company and when the economy collapsed in 2000, 2001, uh, it stopped being as much fun. I made a conscious decision to go on what turned out to be my first of three six-month sabbaticals where I traveled the world and sort of revisited my purpose. And on that first sabbatical during September 11th and, and in 2001, uh, I really landed on wanting to devote my the rest of my career and my life to philanthropy and social impact. And so that's really the work I've been doing since. Uh, I got I had the privilege of being the executive director of Craigslist Foundation and starting their nonprofit boot camp. Uh, that experience, and in particular, trying to identify sort of the mirror image of Craigslist, which is about people helping people uh, and applying it into the nonprofit landscape, which where I landed on helping people help, that's basically become my life's work. And that's the work I do as a consultant, as a coach, public speaker and uh, and as a team member of different mission-led organizations is really working with leaders who want to make the world a better place and helping connect them to the best practices, the helpful resources and the context they need to do that. And I've worked at a number of different organizations. I've done grant making uh, and philanthropic advising, mostly focused on Dayton, Ohio. I've done a lot of environmental work with Richard Branson and some other folks. I've worked with the United Nations on their SDGs, and that led to a lot of gender work that I've done uh, as the co-founder of something called Gender Smart. Uh, and then I've just done, a, a, like I said, a bunch of reading, speaking, et cetera. I ran Blue Avocado for uh, a few years, the free online magazine for nonprofits, and have just been really focused on this lifelong vision and, and mission of helping support those who want to make the world a better place. Darian, you mentioned the nonprofit boot camp that you started when you were at Craigslist Foundation, which was phenomenally successful, grew immensely. I'm curious, as, as we think about this topic of board fundraising, mm. what did that experience, as you brought all of those nonprofit leaders together, certainly they were sharing some of their challenges, some of their successes when it came to board engagement. How did mm. that spur your thinking uh, relative to, to board fundraising? Yeah, I mean, when I first got the executive director role at Craigslist Foundation, I spent probably a good six months doing a bit of a listening tour just to talk to different, not only nonprofit leaders, but also capacity builders, uh, you know, consultants, other nonprofits that exist to support fellow nonprofits. And what I heard is that it, very clearly is there's a lot of fragmentation, a lot of duplication of efforts. 
you know, in the business world where I got my start, you'd never see a business plan without a competitive analysis. And yet in the nonprofit world, like there's, it is the norm that somebody is starting a new nonprofit without taking uh, the opportunity to survey the landscape, see who else is out there and how they're different. And so, you know, I, I heard there was a lot of, of reinventing the wheel, not only in terms of creating organizations that in some other iteration already existed, but in terms of, you know, suffering through the trials and tribulations of, of running a nonprofit uh, and whether it's around boards, around fundraising, around strategy, around program planning, whatever, financial management and HR, uh, you know, thousands, if actually millions of organizations and leaders have already solved a lot of these problems. And especially for the little guys that didn't know, uh, not only didn't they have the information, they didn't even know where to find it. And who are the groups out there that can help us with our technology or our financial management or fundraising? And so that kind of dot connecting was really the focus of the boot camp. And it's become subsequently the focus of my career. Um, is really, you know, helping to put people in touch with these helpful resources, but also just giving them the answer key because a lot of these problems have already been uh, been answered and solved. Darian, one of the one of the areas that boards are specifically charged in is ensuring that the organization has the resources it needs to be successful. Sometimes that's financial, sometimes that's human resources, information technology, um, etc. For nonprofit leaders who are working to engage their board more deeply in fundraising, how do you recommend that they start that process? So I'm, I'm just, you know, you and I both work with boards sure. that are at different stages of maturity, different Absolutely. stages of sophistication when it comes to their fundraising responsibilities. For nonprofit leaders who may be at ground zero or sure. at the first place, where do you recommend or how do you recommend they at least get the ball rolling, get their board out of the starting gate with, res sure. with respect to fundraising? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is most nonprofits, in my experience, especially small to mid-sized groups, they're not starting at ground zero. They're actually starting at like the negative 20-yard line uh, because, you know, in your question, the first thing you said is, you know, one of the core responsibilities of the board is to provide the resources to support the programs. The, the norm uh, is that most board members don't actually know that. They, they've been brought on board with the, oh, it won't be that much work to show up to a couple of meetings or some kind of vague and abstract overview of what's expected of them. But they're a lot of times, way too many in my experience, not explicitly told, hey, part of your job is not only to help us set the vision uh, and the programs for this organization, but to help marshal the resources to execute against those. And here's what that specifically looks like in our case. Uh, and so when you skip all of that and then yet you expect the board member to know that it's a core responsibility, that's not on them. They're not dead weight. That's on you and a failure to set expectations and manage against those. Uh, and ultimately, that is the core answer to the question is being really explicit about what's expected uh, and providing the support needed to execute against that. The real pickle, Greg, in, in my experience is how do you get the board that's off the negative 20 yard line where nobody's been told that they're expected to fundraise? Odds are, especially if it's a smaller group, they're essentially functioning as an extension of the staff. But now that we're hitting, let's say, the million dollar a year mark for our budget, we're able to actually pay people to do the work. And what we need from our board evolves from a working board to more of a strategic and a governing board uh, that helps with fundraising and with strategy. And that's a, an exciting transitional moment for nonprofits, but if you handle it wrong, 
Meaning, you know, what, what will oftentimes happen is you'll essentially pull the rug out from under the board uh, and instead of saying, thank you so much for all your hard work, your unwavering commitment and getting us to this inflection point, and now, in large part due to you, like our needs and, and our goals are evolving, we're going to turn it up to 11, we're going to raise vastly more money, and that's going to have some impact on what is the highest and best purpose of our board. So let's talk about that and have a conversation. You know, that feels good. That feels like, oh, I can, as a board member, I feel proud that I helped us get to this point, as opposed to going to your board and saying like, hey, guys, we really need your help with fundraising. And so everybody's going to be expected to blank. Uh, otherwise, you got to get off the board. And then it feels super disrespectful. You're burning the bridge and you're not honoring and respecting the contribution of the people that got you to this point. And so, you know, the the two things I would say is, Number one, it's really a, it needs to be a graceful transition that is board led, where they have a voice, where nothing is getting forced on them. There's no bait and switch, um, you know. But and and number two is, it is next to impossible for the staff, whether it's executive director, director of development, whatever it might be, to really drive this process and navigate it. At the very least, it has to be board led. Optimally, if there's a little bit of funding available, it could be consultant-led, right? And the idea is, um, you know, anytime, in my experience, when the nonprofit tries to do this themselves, it will feel inevitably like a bait and switch and like we're moving the goalposts. And so uh, that will almost always blow up in your face. At the very least, if there's no budget, you'd want to pick one board champion, probably your chair, head of the governance committee, Convince them why this transition is needed, uh, you know, at the big picture level, at the specific tool level, and we can dive into that in a second. Some of the particular pieces of infrastructure and the interventions that uh, can help facilitate the transition I'm talking about, um, you know, and just, um, you know, and, and being really clear. So you recruit that board member as an ally, as a champion, and then that person is talking to their peers to, to deliver the message of, hey, guys, our needs are evolving as a group. Let's talk about what that means. And we've heard about these tools that might be helpful. Here's some templates. What do you all think? But it's a peer-to-peer -peer conversation as opposed to you trying to tell your board what you need from them uh, that is different than what you've told them in the past. And so yeah. when you handle it that way, I, I find that you get much better results. And then if you have a budget to pay someone who can wear the best practice hat and they've written the books or they've helped hundreds of other groups go through similar transitions, that credibility can also be really helpful. But even then, they need to play more of a facilitative role versus a prescriptive one. And they're there to help the board decide for itself what responsibilities are, are uh, you know, realistic and appropriate. Darren, you, you mentioned a, a key word in there multiple times, and it was expectations. And sure. it was that the importance of, and you and I both talk about how the board is ultimately a team. It's a collection of individuals that have a common purpose mm -hmm. and have a common understanding. But like most teams, ownership has to come from within, right? And, mm -hmm. and exactly Absolutely. what you were talking about with the creation of expectations uh, it's often most effective if the board themselves sits down and says, as a team, what do we expect of each other exactly. when it comes to fundraising? How can we leverage our networks? How can we leverage our skills and talents, which are unique and different? No two board members are created yep. alike or are going to excel in exactly the same way. So I think that that notion of expectations is critically important. 
something else that you touched on that I'd love to hear your your reflection on is support. You know, it's mm-hmm. one thing to create expectations for a board, but as you and I both know, no one comes to nonprofit board service typically as a professional fundraiser. It very rarely happens. What types of supports or aids are available that you found effective for board members as they try to live into and excel in these expectations? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different support systems uh, and tools that I could recommend. I'll I'll elaborate on some of those in just a second. Let me just quickly say on the expectations front, you know, again, I, I find that, as you said, you know, fundraising is a core responsibility. Most board members don't know that. So just step one is is being explicit and articulating in writing what those expectations are and fundraising expectations are the most important because they tend to be the most contentious uh, and you get the most pushback. So, you know, really going through the process of not just talking about it, not just sending an email that's off the cuff, but having something documented in standardized language that everyone in the board has blessed and it feels like it's their document, not yours. And then they sign it and they look back at that document every year to say, did I do all these things? That creates that baseline of accountability and those expectations. Uh, you know, there's a range of tools like an annual survey, for example, where you just ask the board member, okay, what are your goals for the year ahead? And what kind of support do you need from the staff and the board to achieve those? And then you can kind of, you know, follow up on, on their requests. Oh, I need a an FAQ sheet or some key messaging or a brochure, whatever it might be. Um, you know, so so setting those expectations is critical and it's not, you know, buried in your bylaws and it's in legalese and it takes up 10 pages. It's, you know, short to the point and it's something you revisit on a regular basis. In terms of the different types of support uh, that are needed, again, there's, you know, first and foremost at, at the top of my list would be whatever they ask for. So, you know, give them what they say they need uh, to engage in this way. But, you know, especially as it relates to this transition from more of a working board to a strategic a governing a fundraising board, what I've found to be most helpful is first and foremost, starting with the foundational tools. And the one that I've sort of indirectly referenced a couple times, step one needs to be a board member agreement. And it's just it's a uniform job description it's a contract even though this is a volunteer commitment it's a good faith effort but just having a very simple document no more than two or three pages i'm happy to email that out to any of your listeners if they want to contact me uh but you know a a super simple document that in plain language and black and white terms says you know as a board member of organization x we all commit to the following every year colon And then you just have a dozen items or whatever the number turns out to be, where instead of the language you might find in your bylaws says something like, I'll make a good faith effort to attend all board meetings. And that's subjective inherently. No, this is a management tool. It's short. It's to the point. And it's very clear. I will attend 75% of all board meetings. I will serve on a committee. I will contribute X hours a, a month. I will support fundraising in the following ways. And we'll get into that in one second. Uh, because the give or get mentality is is sort of the norm, and that is very problematic on multiple levels. Uh, but the point is, you're kind of you're you're really thinking the mantra that I always bring into into board engagement, especially around fundraising, is low touch, high value. If a celebrity or a rock star joins your board and they have 
maybe a couple hours a month to contribute, what are the things that even that person would need to contribute in order to be considered doing their job? And just enumerate that and put it in, in a simple document, uh, including fundraising. So that's, you know, sort of step one is just saying, what are we all expecting of one another? And this is a document that the entire board would be signing alongside the chair, attesting to their commitment. And if they're not comfortable committing it, once the board, you know, finalizes it and votes in, they're expected to transition off. And that can be very graceful and it can feel like I've done my work, you know, now you're ready for the next chapter and your needs have evolved and I'm too busy or whatever it might be. I've gotten huge checks on the, on the board members way out the door because they felt so good about that transition. So that's sort of step one. Step two in brief is typically a board matrix, which is just a recruitment and a refinement tool. If you're looking to expand or enhance your board, uh, you know, all too often, you know, I got an email yesterday. Hey, does anybody know any good board members for us? I'm like, okay, I know a little bit about the mission and what you're doing, but what are you looking for? And in, in my experience, when everyone on the board and the key staff are out there in the world saying, does anybody know a Latina accountant with good, you know, foundation connections or whatever it might be uh, that shares our passion for eradicating poverty or addressing homelessness or whatever it might be, now you're getting really specific in the likelihood of somebody saying, oh, I know somebody for you and suggesting someone that's really relevant exponentially higher. So the board matrix is a tool to help guide that conversation very simply. And then the final piece that I find to be really important in these transition periods is speaking directly to one of my biggest peeves, which is most nonprofit board meetings are a horrible waste of time. And what a consent agenda addresses is that the reason why they typically are not very fruitful and useful is the norm is you spend 90% of your meeting time talking at the board, giving them a bunch of updates and FYIs. They ask clarifying questions and then they go home. And the, the mission has not moved forward one iota, as opposed to getting all those updates out of the out of the way the first five or 10 minutes, and that's what the consent agenda does, but then it frees up 80 to 90% of your meeting time to get into dialogue, problem solving, brainstorming. You know, we are at a, a fork in the road. Should we go left or right? Here's, you know, but answering the questions that you don't already know the answers to as a, a, an ED, as a staffer, before the meeting starts. That's the value of bringing the board together is moving the mission forward. And by the way, when the board does that, they organically develop a much deeper sense of ownership over the work and the mission. And that directly ties into deeper engagement and fundraising. So those would be sort of the three most important tools right out of the gate. But then there's all the policies, there's committee charters and officer job descriptions, that annual survey that I referenced, and any, any number of other things depending upon what they do. Darian, as you think about expectations and support for board members, one of the, the terms that you use that I, I we both probably get asked about often is board give or get. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that's problematic on a number of different levels. Oh, yeah. I completely agree with you. For our listeners who may be wrestling with that question themselves, perhaps they inherited a board that was familiar with the give-get approach. Can you give our uh, audience just a brief synopsis of you know, what is the give or get policy typically? Why is it problematic in just a few words? Yeah, so, you know, again, there's a, there's multiple problems here. First of all, by having the give or get combined, that's sort of problem number one. 
which is that if you, if we're getting serious, if we're past, call it a million dollars a year in budget, and you're starting to go after the bigger six, maybe even seven-figure grants, multi-year commitments, one of the questions you will start to get asked by institutional funders like foundations and corporate supporters is what percentage of your board gives? What's your board participation in fundraising is usually the way they phrase that. And the right answer is 100%. Everybody gives, and now we're raising even more money from external partners. Uh, the wrong answer is anything less than 100%, because then anybody that asks that is going to say, I'm sorry, we can't fund you. Go ask your board for the money. That's like a total setup. So you don't want to lose an opportunity to get a half million dollar grant just because one board member couldn't contribute five bucks or whatever the number is. Like, it's generally not about the volume. It's just about the percentage that every board member gives. Right. And if you combine the give or get, then inherently, if somebody helps to line up some funding from their employer or their network or whatever, it kind of lets them off the hook to make a personal contribution. And that's problematic from a standpoint of, of undermining that 100% board participation. So that's really why it's critical to support them. But even when you look at them separately, the give and the get, by putting a number, by putting an arbitrary quota on there, it undermines diversity and it also hamstrings fundraising because you know maybe you're a youth services organization and wouldn't it be nice if more of those had youth represented on the board at the leadership level but you know that five thousand dollar you know donation requirement might be a little daunting if you're 25 or whatever right so you don't want to undermine uh, diversity and really the ability to represent the community you serve and at the same time what if there's the partner of a law firm or a rock star on your board who that 10 grand is a drop in the bucket and they could add two zeros and not lose an, an ounce of sleep. But because it says 10 grand, maybe they give 20 and feel good about it. No, like the, the optimal language on the give section, as I see it, is requiring uh, what is typically referred to as an, a personal capacity gift. Uh, meaning, and I would I define this in writing in that template in that board member agreement, that every board member decides for him or herself what is the largest gift they can comfortably give this year? And that's what they give. And it's the largest gift they can comfortably give and one of their top three philanthropic investments of the year. Maybe if your board is a, a bunch of well-connected folks that are on tons of other boards, maybe instead of top three, it's top five, top seven. In general, though, I do like to have a number so it's black and white, it's quantifiable, it's a very clear yes or no, even though that person's going to be self-reporting, the cops aren't going to show up at their door. So that's the give side is the personal capacity gift uh you know one of your top three philanthropic investments and the largest gift you can comfortably make inherently subject but then the get side is again if you have that quota that could be daunting for uh you know someone who's young or someone who's got a history of uh, lived poverty experience just as if somebody is a billionaire and has tons of connections they could snap their fingers and raise that amount of money. You don't want to undermine that. So instead of saying everybody's hope, you know, expected to get X dollars, um, I like to just say everybody's expected to open up their Rolodex and help facilitate, pick a number. Typically, I see three introductions a year to potential supporters. That could be potential board members or in-kind providers. It could be donors, funders, sponsors of our events, et cetera, right? And so... Uh, you know, as opposed to pegging it on the results, it's just about getting them to open up the door. And the other thing that I find it to be really important to say when you're doing this is that 
if any board members are uncomfortable making an ask and asking people for money, that they will not be forced to do so. Someone else on the board or the staff can do that. And the point is, when board members raise concerns about fundraising, the thing I almost always hear from them is, I don't like to ask people for money. I could wax philosophical for hours on how that's only one small part of fundraising, you know, and it skips all the stewardship and the cultivation sides of before the ask, after the ask, et cetera, all the relationship management. But be that as it may, um, you know, I, I don't think you should be forcing board members to ask for money who don't want to do that because the results will be poor, they'll get resentful, and it will undermine their ability to just open up doors and do what they can do host an event, come do a pitch, but let me make the ask, but just speak to why you're making time for this board role, right? Those kinds of things are all really helpful, and certainly the intros are as well. Jerry, so before even the get on different sides of the coin. Before we wrap up, we talked about expectations. We talked about support for board members. I always talk to boards about the three-legged stool. It's expectations, it's support, and then that third leg is accountability. Mm -hmm. So for nonprofit leaders and board members who are listening to the podcast today, let's say their board has come together. They collectively have created and owned a set of expectations. Their executive director and staff have provided support to meet those expectations. How do you recommend boards foster a culture of accountability among between and among each other as a mm -hmm. board team? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this has to come from the board. It's really hard for the staff to hold the board accountable because they are fundamentally volunteers. Uh, so utilizing the board to really supervise their peers is is critical. From a standpoint of staff attempting to create accountability, what I find to be most helpful is uh, instead of tasking the board with something, it's about asking them, right? And it's about letting them decide for themselves what their goals are and, and to what, uh, you know, outcomes they want to be accountable. So I mentioned the consent agenda tool that kind of condenses all those FYIs and updates to the first five or 10 minutes of your meetings. Uh, you know, in brief, what that includes is an organizational dashboard, but it also includes uh, executive summaries, no more than two paragraphs each. All of those FYIs get put into writing. And finally, it includes the minutes from the previous meeting. Um, uh, you know, it includes the minutes from the previous meeting. And in those minutes, I like to streamline them so they're only two or three pages, not very long, with a focus on three things. One is just the key takeaways and themes that came out of it. Uh, two is the votes that were taken. But the third one is any commitments that were shared. And I like to literally go through the minutes and highlight, you know, Greg committed to this, the entire finance committee, you know, committee committed to that, and the entire board committed to that. And ideally, there's deadlines associated with each of those, and I highlight each one in a different color. So Greg knows he's a board member, he's Greg, he's a member of this committee, and so he's looking for those three highlighter colors to make sure he did his homework. And, you know, in the meeting, as you review and approve this, this packet, it becomes really clear what people... Uh, you know, uh, committed to in the previous meeting and what has been done and what hasn't. And that soft accountability where it's really the board member saying, I'm going to call a plumber for us by next Friday. And then all you're doing is writing that down in the minutes and highlighting with the appropriate color. And then it tends to, you know, much more uh, often take care of itself. Darian, I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the podcast today. 
for those who are listening to the podcast who want to get more information, learn more, connect with you directly, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you? Yeah, so we do have a website uh, for my nonprofit consulting and coaching work. That's at helpingpeoplehelp.com. Uh, I also have written a couple of best-selling books that you can grab on Amazon, Nonprofit Management 101, which is in the second edition, with a new forward by CNN's Van Jones, and Nonprofit Fundraising 101. Uh, and like I said, both of those are on Amazon. So those are probably the best places to get in touch with me. Certainly, if any of your listeners want templates for the tools that I mentioned, they can contact me through my website. Um, you know, and uh, and yeah, there's also a bunch of other publications out there. I mentioned Blue Avocado I've been affiliated with. Uh, and so there's no shortage of, of resources to learn in general. But if folks want to get in touch with me, those are the best ways to do that. Darian, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. For those who are listening to the podcast, if you're enjoying the podcast, highly encourage you, share it with your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, as we continue to build this prepared and engaged nonprofit community. If you're enjoying the podcast, also be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so that you are the first to know about and hear about new episodes as they go live. Darian, thank you again. Have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to everybody out there.